History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Words spoken by the Osiris, the king of southern and northern Egypt, Keper Keperu Ra, the one who does Ma'at, true of voice. The king says, O Mother Nut, spread yourself over me. May you place me among the imperishable stars which are within you, and I will not die again. From the sarcophagus of King I in his royal tomb. Iri Nini in Chen. Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 159, The End of an Era. Today, we come to the final years, not just of King Ai, but of the Amarna period as a whole. After three decades and dozens of episodes, the phenomenon is petering out. The pharaoh Ai was the last of the Amarna rulers. Let's examine his final years. This episode arrives on behalf of Michael Kay in gratitude for his donation to the show. Michael, you are most generous. I, and I, thank you for your support. The temples will fill with offerings, some of which will go to the priests. But I, and the gods, are most grateful. To everyone listening, welcome to the show. I hope you enjoy the story. The year was 1331 BCE, give or take. The king of southern and northern Egypt was celebrating his fourth year in power. Keper Keperu Ra, the god's father, I, had ruled Egypt officially for just a few years, but his influence was now decades old. So far, I had served the crown and shaped its decisions for nearly 20 years. As an official, a member, and representative of the government, Ai's power goes back much further than his reign. By the time he gained the throne, Ai was probably quite old, in his fifties at least. As you would expect, his reign wound up being short. The highest date for this king is regnal year 4, in the fourth month of Akhet, aka the fourth month of the annual flood. Roughly speaking, this would be November of 1331 BCE. That is a starting point to measure his reign. We can say, confidently, that I ruled more than three years. But beyond that, it is vague. It is possible that King I ruled much longer. Some estimates go as high as nine or ten years. And there are a couple of valid reasons for suspecting that. I'll explain those later. But historians must go on what they know, and avoid speculating too much. So we reach another point of chronological uncertainty. Personally, I suspect the reign should be longer, but for now, we have to say four years at most. 
So by 1331 BCE, King Ai's clock was probably running out. What did he do with his final years, or months, in power? In the last phase of his reign, King Ai clearly started to look towards his legacy. We get a sense of this from some names. Late in his reign, King Ai adopted new royal titles. These were attached to his cartouches and his general royal titulary. Some of these are quite illuminating. The first title that I added was One Who Does Ma'at. I used this title before he became the king. It shows up in his records, during the courtier phase of his career. But as pharaoh, I added this to his royal names. Clearly, this was important to him. At a basic level, the title One Who Does Ma'at implies that I, more than anyone else, was doing the right thing. He was acting within the boundaries of Ma'at and upholding those ideals. Fair enough. Preserving Ma'at, the divine order, was one of a king's most important duties. But Ai's adherence to this, even before he became king, is interesting. Perhaps following the death of Akhenaten, the Egyptian government and its leaders wanted to emphasize stability. They would maintain traditions, as Akhenaten had not. They would renew the proper way of doing things, that Akhenaten had disrupted. They would preserve and restore Ma'at in a more traditional sense. Another title reinforces this concept. Beyond the phrase, one who does Ma'at, Ai also calls himself the Heka Ma'at, or the true ruler. You could read that a couple of ways. Heka Ma'at could be another version of Dua of Ma'at, a name that emphasized tradition. Or it could have been a way to strengthen the king's legitimacy. If anyone was challenging Ai, claiming the right to rule, perhaps a title like True Ruler would publicly rebuke that idea. So late in his reign, King Ai upgraded his royal names and included two new phrases, one who does Ma'at and the True Ruler, or Heka Ma'at. Finally, the king added a more conventional title. From now on, he would be known as the Necher Heka Waset. This roughly translates as the god who rules Waset, Thebes or Luxor. Alternatively, you could translate it as the god-like or divine ruler of Waset. Either way, you get the idea. Late in his reign, I started using a title linked to the city of Waset, and to the gods who ruled there. Other kings had used this title, or a version of it, so I was not doing anything new. But the use of this title gives a hint at his public agenda. The king was linking himself specifically with the southern city, and linking himself with the gods who ruled that area. Once again, we get a sense of King Ai consciously moving back to older, traditional ideas. The shadow of Akhenaten's reforms was long, and although Ai had participated in that, now he was part of the solution. The pharaoh, as a person and an institution, was turning its back on those ideas. I'll come back to this point later, when we consider Ai's legacy. For now, let's carry on with his life, and his final deeds as king. The big challenge facing the elderly pharaoh was his tomb. 
Would he have time for a proper monument? Well, let's explore. Early in his career, the god's father Ai did start a tomb. It was located at Amana, or Aket-Aten, the city of Akhenaten and Nefertiti, the center of their regime. As a part of that government, Ai created a magnificent monument in the city. This tomb was lavish and had multiple chambers, a forest of columns, exquisite art, and elaborate texts. Today, the tomb of Ai at Amana is one of the best attractions in that city. But the Amana days were long gone, and Ai's tomb was abandoned. Half-finished, strewn with rubble and debris, that non-royal monument was out of the way, out of time, and out of fashion. So King Ai would need something grander. And he got it in the Valley of the Kings. Sort of. The tomb of King Ai is located in a valley just west of the main Valley of the Kings. As you can guess, this western valley is generally called the Western Valley. Not the most imaginative name. I prefer the Arabic name, the Wadi al-Gurud. This translates as the Valley of the Monkeys. Why? Well, we have Ai to thank for that. The tomb of Ai in the Valley of the Monkeys is a long, straight monument. It goes down deep into the earth, a series of staircases and corridors leading to a burial chamber. Here, deep beneath the ground, you will find the king's burial. Ai's tomb is large. From the entrance, a long passageway descends into the rock. It slopes down with the occasional staircase. And as you descend, you make your way through two corridors. Then, at the bottom, the tomb suddenly levels out, and it opens up to a series of chambers. Three rooms mark the grave of King Ai. These rooms are small and sparsely decorated, but they are interesting. When you enter the burial chamber, you will find the walls covered in paintings. The design is generic. We see the king, the gods, and the next world. So there's not much to say about these paintings, but a couple of noteworthy features stand out. On one wall, a group of monkeys appear. There are 12 of them, arranged in a grid. These monkeys, or rather baboons, represent the 12 hours of night, and together they form a part of the Amduat, or that which is in the underworld. These monkeys are similar to ones in the tomb of Tutankhamun, but the tomb of Ai came to light more than a hundred years before that monument. So locals, aware of this monument, started calling it, and the area, the Wadi al-Gurud, the Valley of the Monkeys. So the burial of Ai, and the artist who painted it, wound up defining this little region. Not a bad record in the context. Beyond the monkeys, or baboons, there is also a noteworthy scene. When decorating the tomb, the artist, or the king, added a special flourish. On the eastern side of the burial chamber, to your right as you walk in, the paintings do not show gods or the afterlife. Instead, they show this life, our world. A large scene across the eastern wall shows King Ai hunting. The pharaoh and his wife Tay visit the marshes on the riverbank. They ride boats amid the reeds, and the king traps birds, catches fish, and pulls weeds out of the water. It is an idyllic scene, 
Pharaoh enjoying a moment of relaxation. Okay, it sounds pretty, in a president-goes-golfing kind of way. What's the big deal? Well, the image of Ai and Tay hunting is actually unique for a royal tomb. No other pharaoh has a painting like this. Traditionally, royal burials have hieroglyphic texts like the Amduat or the Book of the Dead. They have gods and areas of the underworld. But to date, the image of Ai in the marshes is completely unique for a royal tomb. It may be a reference to his earlier non-royal career, his days as a courtier and advisor to the pharaohs. Whatever the origin, this scene makes Ai's monument special in a small way. So that is a fun detail. These paintings are bright and vibrant, but design-wise, they are almost identical to ones that you find in the tomb of Tutankhamun. Ai's burial chamber has the same yellow background, the same types of images, and the same style. The people on the walls have the same physical proportions and features as the tomb of Tutankhamun. All up, it seems quite likely that the same artists designed both monuments. That makes sense. By the time King Ai passed to the west, the burial of Tutankhamun was probably just four or five years gone. So the same master artists and the same apprentices may have been on the job. If that is accurate, they might be some of the only artists to paint multiple royal tombs in a single career. That would be a cool thing to have on their resume. Anyway, the tomb of Ai bears an artistic resemblance to the monument of Tutankhamun. Speaking of Tutankhamun, there is a lingering question about this tomb. Ai's monument is large. If you follow the corridors to the bottom, the tomb is more than 60 meters long, about 2,000 feet. So Ai's tomb is big, much larger than we would expect for this king. Earlier, I mentioned that the highest date for this ruler is year 4, but his tomb is quite long. This is curious. The royal tombs in the Valley of the Kings took a long time to excavate, especially the corridors where space was limited and only a couple of men could work side by side. Looking at the long corridors that lead down to Ai's burial chamber, this monument seems too long. With that in mind, it is possible that Ai actually reigned longer than we know. Perhaps he did not rule four years, but five, six, even ten. That is conceivable if you're just looking at the tomb. On the other hand, perhaps I did not start this tomb. Perhaps he inherited it, partially completed, from someone else. There is a good chance that I's burial was originally the tomb of Tutankhamun. Work on this monument could have started under that king, but when he died unexpectedly, the court buried him somewhere else. Then, when King Ai took the throne, perhaps he resumed work on Tutankhamun's old monument. This could explain why a king who reigned four years has a much larger tomb than the king who reigned for ten. Unfortunately, we do not have any proof of that hypothesis. There are no artifacts from this monument that mention Tutankhamun or anything like that. So it's just an idea. But that might explain how I got such a large tomb, despite such a short reign. 
Personally, I do like this idea. I'm not committed to it, but it would explain a few things. If future research proves this wrong, fair enough. But for now, I do think it's a decent possibility. The Royal Tomb of Ai is out of the way, off the beaten track. As a result, tourists don't go there very often, but the tomb is open for visits, and if you're the sort of traveller who likes to avoid the crowds, the Tomb of Ai is highly recommended. It is quiet, remote, and you get a lovely sense of the ancient landscape. Because the tomb is located in the Western Valley, it's a nice distance away from the tourist traps. There are no shops or rest houses to distract you, just cliffs, rock, and the hidden monument. It's a good destination for the intrepid traveller. If you want to see Ai's tomb now, you can find a lovely video on YouTube. In 2017, a presenter named Curtis Ryan Woodside visited the monument, and he took a wonderful video of the decoration. I recommend Curtis's documentary, it is a lovely structure. To see this video, follow the link in the episode description. The Tomb of Ai is out of the way, and it may seem unimportant. That is certainly what the original excavator, a man named Belzoni, thought of it. In 1816, Belzoni was visiting this area, and in the course of his work, the tomb of King Ai came to light. But the monument was in a poor state, full of rubble and mud. It seemed dilapidated. And what's more, someone had damaged the monument in antiquity. 3,000 years before Belzoni uncovered it, ancient Egyptians had attacked the tomb of Ai. We don't know when, exactly, but the vandals were thorough. They destroyed much of the furnishings, including the sarcophagus, and they hacked away at the paintings. It was a violent deed, and it totally wrecked the burial. I will explore that destruction next time in a side episode. For now, let's focus on Ai and his legacy as a ruler. After the break, we dive into the last moments of the king's reign, and we take a look at his reputation. The pharaoh Ai, Keper Keperu Ra, might be a lesser name in Egyptian history, but when we take a step back and look at the big picture, his life and career are fascinating. That is chapter two, after the break. See you in a moment. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
By 1331 BCE, the pharaoh of Egypt was coming to his end. The highest known date is year 4, the fourth month of Arket. So King Ai may have died sometime around November in 1331 BCE. The cause of this king's death is unknown. It could have been illness or complications related to age. Unfortunately, we do not have Ai's mummy, as far as we know. There is some speculation that one of the royal mummies could actually be King Ai, but so far nobody has proved that convincingly. So for now, we have to assume that we don't have his body. That's unfortunate. It would be good to know how old he was, and what kind of ailments he may have suffered. So his cause of death is unknown. The date? Also unknown, but roughly around November, 1331. That's pretty vague, not a lot to go on. But that's kind of the story with King Ai. He reigned a short time, and many of his monuments or records were taken over by others later. So the king is still left in the shadows. At the very least, we can say that sometime around year 4, the living Horus flew to the west. The god's father finally died. Soon, there would be a successor, a new Horus to inherit the crowns. But that story will have to wait. First, we must see how I fits into the larger history. What was his legacy? King I might seem unimportant, and with a short reign, it is easy to see why. But when we look on his career in total, we can see a bigger picture. I lived through one of the most fascinating periods in royal history. His career started under Akhenaten, the heretic pharaoh. And as a servant of Akhenaten, the courtier I contributed to the larger story of that time. As a god's father, I might have been an advisor, even a teacher, for Akhenaten. From the moment we meet him, this man was at the centre of royal life. Likewise, Ai's wife, the Lady Tay, held high rank. Tay was a favourite of the good god, the king, and she was Menat, wet nurse or tutor, for the king's great wife, the famous Nefertiti. So Tay had her own connections, her own influence with the royals. We know less about Tay, unfortunately, but the surviving pieces hint at a life spent in the palace. Together, Tay and I were an ancient power couple, and even at the start of their careers, they were close to the rulers. So right out the gate, I and Tay had an important place in royal history. But beyond that glitzy, glamorous life at the court, they also added to history in a bigger sense. The courtier I built a tomb at Amana, a lavish monument with elaborate decorations and features. That tomb survives, and it tells us a lot about life in Amana, life serving Akhenaten. Along the way, I also preserved something important. On the walls of that tomb, I added a text. We know this text as the Great Hymn to the Aten. It is a lengthy song or prayer devoted to the sun god, and historians have used this Great Hymn to examine and unpack Akhenaten's ideas. I was not the only courtier to use the great hymn in his tomb, 
but his version is the longest, the most complete, and the best preserved. So the courtier did something valuable for history. He preserved ideas and knowledge of the Aten faith. Even if he did nothing else with his life, that would be an achievement. I deserves his place in the history books. Then, under Tutankhamun, the courtier added to his legacy. As a high-ranking servant and advisor to the boy king, I probably shaped many of the policies or decisions of Tutankhamun's government. He was not totally in charge. The general Horemheb also had a lot of power. But as part of the inner circle, the god's father helped to guide the king. The restoration project, the renewal of temples and statues, was one of those initiatives. Perhaps I influenced or implemented some of those ideas. Then, as king, I brought the restoration project closer to its goal. As Kepa Keparu Ra, the one who does Ma'at, King I expanded on Tutankhamun's achievements. Again, those achievements were partly his own achievements. So, as a ruler, I was conservative in the classic sense. He resisted change, he stayed the course, he maintained the government's policies. That may not sound important, but it can be meaningful. Occasionally, a government needs a steady or predictable hand, someone who will not interfere or meddle with the machine. Remember, the Egyptian government was still dealing with Akhenaten and his revolutionary ideals. Perhaps King Ai gave the court what they needed, continuity and stability. So, yeah, King Ai did not reign long. Three years at least, maybe five, or even ten if you're feeling generous. But although his official reign was short, the age of Ai's influence was much longer. For 30 years, roughly speaking, he had been at the heart of royal politics. So when he finally died, the courtier, the pharaoh, had a long resume. I must admit, when I first started to research the Amana period years ago, I did not expect much from Ai. A few years, a couple of monuments, some little tidbits. But in the end, I was wrong about I. Diving deeper, the king's records throw up some fascinating details. From his work at a temple glorifying Tutankhamun, episode 156, to his possible victories in war, episode 157, to his administrative and religious deeds, episode 158, King I left an unexpectedly rich record. Today, the king may seem forgettable, but if we look closer, beneath the surface, there is an intriguing tale to tell. Ai's story is just beginning. Egyptologists have a lot more to unearth and study. So in the big picture, this pharaoh probably has a few surprises left. In terms of his legacy, you might say, there is more to this king than meets the eye. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. My special thanks to Linda, Terry, TJ, Yola, Mykost, Andy and Chelsea, Jason, Kendra, Evan, Kyla, Nidin, and Stephen, my priest-level backers on patreon.com. 
Patrons like these keep the show running, supplying essential items for the temples and the tombs. My thanks to the priests, and to everyone who listens, donates, or supports the podcast. Your kindness is most generous, and I thank you from the depths of my burial chamber. Hmm, is that a euphemism? The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. (laughs) Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here.